You are listening to Audio Reader, an audio information service for individuals who are blind, visually impaired, and print disabled. Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Associated Press, The Undefeated, The Afro-American, and The Wichita Eagle. The next story for today's African American Hour has a Kansas City connection. It's from the Kansas City Star and is titled, Buck O'Neill Finally Elected to Baseball Hall of Fame 15 Years After Disappointment. It was written by Lynn Worthy and was originally published December 6, 2021. John Jordan Buck O'Neill, the Kansas City Monarch star player and manager who was passed over for the National Baseball Hall of Fame shortly before his death in 2006, was elected to the Hall on Sunday. O'Neill's second chance came via an early baseball-era ballot of 10 individuals. He was one of two on the ballot elected by a 16-member panel. The other was Bud Fowler, often acknowledged as the first black professional baseball player who pitched and played second base in the late 1800s. Needing 12 votes, O'Neill received 13. He will be enshrined this summer at the Hall of Fame's annual ceremony on July 24th in Cooperstown, New York. The news was met with cheers inside the Negro League's baseball museum, which O'Neill helped found and where supporters gathered to watch the announcement. Also Sunday, Gil Hodges, Jim Catt, Minnie Minoso, and Tony Oliva were elected to the Hall of Fame by the Golden Days Era Committee, which voted on another 10-person ballot. The first black coach in Major League Baseball, O'Neill spent the majority of his life connected to the game. He began his playing days as a semi-professional player on the barnstorming circuit before he earned his way into the Negro American League, where he played first base for multiple clubs, but primarily the Kansas City Monarchs. He registered a career batting average of 288 and batted 300 or better in four seasons. He played in three All-Star games as well as two Negro World Series, despite having his career interrupted for two years during World War II when he joined the U.S. Navy. He later managed the Monarchs, including a stint as player manager and won two league titles and shared title as the club skipper. He went on to become a scout and coach for the Chicago Cubs before becoming a scout for the Kansas City Royals in 1988. He's a member of the Professional Baseball Scouts Hall of Fame. O'Neill helped establish the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, and he served as the board chairman of the museum until his death in 2006 at age 94. O'Neill's candidacy had been followed by many across the nation, particularly those who became familiar with him through his appearance in the Ken Burns' prominent PBS documentary, Baseball, and subsequent national interviews and late-night talk show appearances, or those who learned about O'Neill in the pages of former Kansas City Star columnist Joe Posnaski's book, The Soul of Baseball, A Road Trip Through Buck O'Neill's America. But O'Neill's spirit remains woven into the fabric of Kansas City, it's visible and tangible in various memorials, including the Buck O'Neill Memorial Bridge, the Buck O'Neill Legacy Seat at Royals Home Games, the recently debuted Negro League's Buck O'Neill-themed streetcar, the life-size statue at the Negro League's museum, and the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. That spirit is also ever-present in the storytelling and efforts of Negro League's historians such as Larry Lester, Phil Dixon, and current Negro League's president, Bob Kendrick, among others, 
the memories of those who saw him play or manage in the Negro Leagues, those who interacted with him during his days as a scout and local folk hero with the Royals. In 2006, a vote of the Baseball Hall of Fame Special Committee on the Negro Leagues left O'Neill on the outside looking in as a legendary figure without the ultimate stamp of approval. He'd fallen short of the nine votes needed from the 12-member committee. Seventeen Negro Leagues representatives were granted enshrinement at that time. O'Neill expressed jubilation for those who were selected despite what had to have been personal disappointment and gave a speech for them that summer during the Hall of Fame ceremony in Cooperstown. I've been a lot of places, he said. I've done a lot of things I really like doing, but I'd rather be right here, right now, representing the people who helped build a bridge across the chasm of prejudice. A few months later, O'Neill died from complications of congestive heart failure and bone marrow cancer. The litany of posthumous honors bestowed upon O'Neill included the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President George W. Bush, the Hall of Fame presenting the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award, not more often than every three years, and placing a life-size bronze statue of him in the Hall of Fame. He was also one of the recipients of Major League Baseball's inaugural Beacon Awards. Now, 15 years after that original committee felt O'Neill fell short of clearing the bar for enshrinement, O'Neill's name was called on Sunday. There are some pictures that come along with this story about Buck O'Neill. The first shows a group of people cheering with their hands in the air and looking at either their cell phones or a big screen TV that is in front of them. The caption reads, Fans cheered in Kansas City's Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on Sunday, December 5, 2021, when it was announced that Buck O'Neill was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The next image shows a man wiping away tears from his eyes. He is holding his glasses in one hand and there is a laptop computer in front of him. He is wearing headphones and there's baseball memorabilia on the wall behind him. The caption reads, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, reacted when it was announced that Buck O'Neill was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame Sunday, December 5, 2021, at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. The third photo shows a group of men, women, and children standing and clapping their hands. The caption for this image reads, There's cheers all around Sunday, December 5, 2021, at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum when it was announced that Buck O'Neill was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. The last photograph that goes along with this story shows a young woman wiping away tears off her cheek. She is wearing a white and red Kansas City Monarchs baseball cap and a blue Negro Leagues Museum t-shirt. The caption reads... Kiona Sinks, Community Engagement Manager for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, reacted when it was announced that Buck O'Neill was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame Sunday, December 5, 2021, at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. That's the story titled, Buck O'Neill Finally Elected to Baseball Hall of Fame 15 Years After Disappointment. It was originally published in the Kansas City Star newspaper, was written by Lynn Worthy, and was originally published December 6, 2021. The next story in today's African American Hour is a film review and focuses on a native of Fort Scott, Kansas. It is titled, 
Gordon Park's documentary on HBO only gives us half the picture. The subtitle to the story reads, A Choice of Weapons talks about the activist and artistic pioneer, but not enough about the person. It was written by Jesse Washington and was published in the November 15th edition of the Undefeated.com website. It's easy these days to forget the power of the still image. Our lives are drenched in video streaming from tiny, isolating screens, reprogramming us to crave constant movement and stimulation. The overwhelming volume and speed of these videos make it hard to slow down, stop, and examine the deeper truths of modern life. That's why the new documentary, A Choice of Weapons, inspired by Gordon Parks, is so essential. Premiering Monday on HBO, the film examines the huge impact of Parks' photography on American society, how he moved into directing films that broke barriers, and why his method of embedding with his subjects animates the work of three important black photographers today, Devin Allen, Latoya Ruby Frazier, and Jamel Shabazz. Born in Kansas in 1912, Parks experienced some of the harshest aspects of American racism, seeing friends killed by police as a boy and being told black students did not have the intellect to attend college. Parks was the youngest of 15 children, and after his mother died, he found himself homeless at age 15. For the next 10 years, he wandered through various cities working as a railroad porter, busser, brothel piano player, semi-pro basketball player, and then photographer. I might have turned eventually to the gun or the knife to survive, but by then I had chosen the camera, Parks said in archival footage in the film. He died in 2006 at age 93. Photography was a way in which I could explore my own feelings about racism in America, about the downtrodden, and somehow or another I might transcend my own experience. The director of the documentary, John Maggio, walks us through the period when Parks developed his skills as a portrait photographer for Black High Society in the 1930s and early 40s, then honed his journalistic eye working for the Federal Farm Security Administration which sent photographers to spend weeks or months on location to document social conditions. That's when Parks met Ella Watson, who cleaned the government building in Washington where they both worked. His photographs of Watson doing her job led to the iconic 1942 image, American Gothic. Watson posed with her broom and mop in front of an American flag, a lifetime of unrewarded struggle etched in her lean face. Parks continued to photograph Watson in her home, which taught him that to truly capture a person's humanity, he couldn't just show up and start clicking. He had to spend time with them to bring forth the larger meanings that Parks recognized due to his own experiences. That epiphany led to his groundbreaking work as the first black photographer for Life magazine, one of the most influential publications in the mid-20th century. From Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali to gang leaders and everyday people, Parks' images were the first time most white people saw black life through a black lens. It was a shift in context that helped propel the freedom movement of the 1960s. This is a thread that connects the three current photographers to Parks. Allen is a Baltimore resident who, while trying to figure out how to become a photographer, pored over Parks' books in the library. When Freddie Gray was killed in the back of a police van in 2015, Allen took to the streets with his camera, producing a series of arresting images of the historic protests and riots. One ended up on the cover of Time magazine, a lone black figure fleeing a horde of police 
capturing the moment and mood in a way that forces the viewer to stop and think about how the past remains present. It's an example of how one frozen moment can reveal more than many minutes of video and how photographs can fight injustice by capturing images that are, as Parks intended, both document and symbol. For the first time, I understand what Gordon was talking about, that the camera is a real weapon, Alan said in the film, and I realized how powerful I am with a camera in my hand. Frazier did the same type of work in Flint, Michigan, when it was dealing with the crisis of a poisoned public water system. Shabazz, known for his portraits of people on the streets of his native New York City, embedded himself in the Rikers Island jail to reveal its inhumanity. The film spends considerable time on the work of this next generation. To see them bringing forth grace and humanity that is still questioned by too much of white America is to understand that when it comes to creating a blueprint for illuminating black life, Parks is as essential as Gwendolyn Brooks, Ralph Ellison, with whom Parks collaborated to create the legendary photo series Invisible Man, or Sidney Poitier. Ironically, the film could do more to illuminate Parks as a person. We learn that his work was informed by his resistance to racism through archival footage of Parks and interviews with art experts and A-list names such as Brian Stevenson, Ava DuVernay, Spike Lee, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We are told he wrote novels, nonfiction, poetry, and composed orchestral and pop music. Maggio portrays Parks as the epitome of debonair, tailored suits, polished wood pipes, grand pianos, horseback rides, ascots. If you close your eyes, Parks' voice might belong to a white man. But halfway through, I found myself wondering, mustn't there have been another side to Parks? Did he ever marry or have children? What was his personality like? Moody, funny, boisterous, demanding? I live off my emotions, perhaps, and so I have turned my emotions into some mercenary thing by which I could survive, Parks said in the film. What were those emotions besides resistance? A choice of weapons doesn't say, even though several of Park's longtime friends are interviewed, along with one of his five children and one of his three ex-wives. Ex-wife Genevieve Young provides one of the most frustrating glimpses of Parks during the section devoted to his directing career. In 1969, Parks became the first black person to direct a major studio feature, The Learning Tree, based on his semi-autobiographical novel. He followed that up in 1971 by directing Shaft, a massive hit credited with helping create the blaxploitation genre. The documentary describes how revolutionary it was to see a character like Detective John Shaft on screen, an aggressive, streetwise, leather-clad black man who cussed out white cops and bagged a white chick in his shower. This was Gordon's other personality, said Young. It's a startling revelation that such smooth caramel hit an ebony gun-toting playboy. Why not explore how that persona informed his art? Another punch is pulled when Anderson Cooper, son of the heiress and socialite Gloria Vanderbilt, talks about his mother's longtime friendship with Parks. They were much more than friends. They were a couple. Why dance around this romance? Maggio and the producers, which include the musician Alicia Keys and her husband Kasim Swiss Beats Dean, must have had their reasons for those omissions. The film moves quickly at an hour and 29 minutes, so an extra 10 minutes wouldn't have hurt. Perhaps they felt his personality was covered in other projects because Parks was often written about and filmed during his lifetime. 
But here, it in some ways reduces Parks to the sum total of the racism he experienced. Early in the film, Stevenson says, to understand the weight that people of color felt in these spaces where you basically had to be two people, one person around white people that would keep you safe and another person with your family, I think gave him an insight into the black narrative. Clearly, as a black man blazing a trail through the highest echelons of Manhattan society before the civil rights movement, seeking to open the eyes of his employers in America to the realities of black life, Parks developed a persona for those spaces. I wish we could have seen the other side of Parks in order to understand even deeper truths about his extraordinary art. There are three photos that accompany this article. The first is a black and white photo of a seated Gordon Parks wearing a sweater with a camera around his neck. He is surrounded by four boys. They are all looking down at something Parks is holding. The caption reads, the HBO documentary, A Choice of Weapons, inspired by Gordon Parks, examines the impact of his photography on American society. The second black and white photograph shows Parks kneeling in a wrinkled trench coat. He is smiling and holding a tripod mounted camera with one hand. The caption to this photo reads, From Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali to gang leaders and everyday people, Gordon Parks' images were the first time most white people saw black life through a black lens. The last black and white photograph shows an Afro-American woman. She has round glasses on her face and is wearing a short-sleeved polka dot dress. Behind her is the American flag hanging on a wall. In front of her is a mop and a broom. The caption reads, Ella Watson, a charwoman employed in a federal office building in Washington, stands in front of an American flag with her mop and broom in a pose reminiscent of Grant Wood's American Gothic. Gordon Parks documented Watson's daily life for the Farm Security Administration in 1942. That is a film review from the Undefeated.com website titled Gordon Parks Documentary on HBO Only Gives Us Half the Picture. It was originally published November 15, 2021, and was written by Jesse Washington. The next story for today's program comes for the Wichita Eagle. It's titled Sports Plus Race. KC's Enemy discusses ongoing search for NFL head coaching job. It was written by Blair Kirkhoff and was published November 24, 2021. John Feinstein's latest book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, examines the role of race in sports. It's a big topic and Feinstein goes deep. The title refers to the raised fist protest by Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the 1968 Olympic medal stand, as well as the backlash against quarterback Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee during the national anthem. There's also a section devoted to hiring practices, and that's where Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy comes in. Feinstein interviews Bieniemy and others with their inability to become NFL head coaches. Bienemy is believed to have interviewed with a list of head coaching vacancies that stretches into double digits. He has addressed the topic before, of course, but in this book he expands on the topic and expresses optimism. I have to take the approach that those jobs were not supposed to be the job that I get, Bienemy says. I know I'm going to get a job because I know if I keep working at what I do and we continue to have success, sooner or later, 
Someone is going to sit in a room with me and say, you're the guy. I just have to be patient. Few with the enemy's credentials have been asked to be more patient. He became the Chiefs' offensive coordinator in Patrick Mahomes' first year as full-time starting quarterback in the NFL. The Chiefs have been to three straight AFC title games, won a Super Bowl, and played in another. Twice in that span, the Chiefs led the NFL in total yards. Head coach Andy Reid is the Chiefs' primary play caller, but as Reid and Mahomes remind us, whenever the topic turns to the enemy and job prospects, the enemy plays a major role in installing the team's weekly game plans. You know who else didn't call plays before becoming a head coach, the enemy said? Coach Reid, also John Gruden. Nor did the two offensive coordinators who came before the enemy in Kansas City, Doug Pedersen and Matt Nagy. Pedersen led the Philadelphia Eagles to a Super Bowl victory in 2017 before being fired after the 2020 season, while Nagy remains head coach of the Chicago Bears. That's a lame excuse, Mahomes says. Almost every team with an offensive coach, he calls most of the plays. Coach B is very involved in our game plan all week and during the game. A lot of guys with head coaching jobs in the NFL right now were never the primary play caller. His time will come, and he'll be a great head coach. Other football coaches also take up the enemy's cause. Why hasn't Eric the enemy gotten a chance yet, said Tony Dungy, who won a Super Bowl with the Indianapolis Colts and is now a studio analyst. I think there's racism involved there. How can there not be at this point? He works with the best quarterback in the game, who raves about him, and no one is hiring him. Pittsburgh Steeler head coach Mike Tomlin calls the ongoing situation unfathomable. I have no idea why Eric Bieniemy isn't a head coach, Tomlin said. None. It's unfathomable to me. Bieniemy tells Feinstein that he's had 10, maybe 11 job interviews. According to ESPN, Bieniemy interviewed with five teams after last season. The Falcons, Lions, Jets, Jaguars, and Chargers. I know when someone is hiring, they aren't just looking for talent necessarily or what's on your resume, Bienemy said. They want to feel comfortable with that person. I haven't been in too many interviews where the guy interviewing me has looked like me. Or I guess you could say where I look like him. There is one photo that accompanies this article. It shows a bald, sweaty coach Bienemy at a Kansas City Chiefs practice. He's wearing a red Chiefs zip-up jacket and he's holding an ink pen and papers in his right hand. The caption reads, Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy interviewed with Lions, Chargers, Falcons, Eagles, and Jets. He didn't get any of those jobs. That's the story titled Sports Plus Race. KC Chiefs Bieniemy discusses ongoing search for NFL head coaching job. It was written by Blair Kirkoff. It was published November 24, 2021, and it comes from the Wichita Eagle. The next article is from the Associated Press website. It was originally published November 12, 2021. The story headline is, Homer Plessy, Key to Separate but Equal, On Road to Pardon, written by Janet McConaughey. A Louisiana board on Friday voted to pardon Homer Plessy, whose decision to sit in a whites-only railroad car to protest discrimination led to the U.S. Supreme Court's 1896 separate but equal ruling affirming state segregation laws. 
The State Board of Pardons' unanimous decision to clear the Creole man's record of a conviction now goes to Governor John Bell Edwards, who has final say over the pardon. Governor Edwards is traveling today, but looks forward to receiving and reviewing the recommendation of the board upon his return Tuesday evening, spokeswoman Christina Stevens said. The Plessy versus Ferguson decision cemented racial segregation for another half century, justifying whites-only spaces in trains and buses, hotels, theaters, schools, and other public accommodations until the Supreme Court unanimously overruled it with their Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954. That decision led to the widespread desegregation of schools and the eventual stripping away of vestiges of the Jim Crow laws that discriminated against black citizens. The pardon recommendation came as New Orleans began a weekend marking the tumultuous integration of its public schools on November 14, 1960, six years after the Brown decision. I think it would be a very good thing to pardon Mr. Homer Plessy after all these years, Leona Tate, 67, said at a City Hall News conference, where she stood between Gail Etienne and Tessie Prevost. The three, as six-year-olds, were escorted by U.S. Marshals past angry white mobs into McDonough No. 19 Elementary School building, the same day Ruby Bridges, the subject of an iconic Norman Rockwell painting, entered the all-white William France Elementary School in another part of town. Keith Plessy, 64, who is descended from a cousin of Homer Plessy, attended the news conference. Later, he told the pardon board that he remembers meeting civil rights icon Rosa Parks, who refused in 1955 to leave a whites-only seat on a bus in Birmingham, Alabama, and kneeling to honor her. She said to me, Get up, boy. Your name is Plessy. You've got work to do, Keith Plessy said. Homer Plessy, described in the Supreme Court opinion as of one-eighth African blood, was arrested in 1892 after boarding the train car as part of an effort by civil rights activists to challenge a state law that mandated segregated seating. The 18-member Citizens Committee was trying to overcome laws that rolled back post-Civil War advances in equality. Plessy, a 30-year-old shoemaker, lacked the business, political, and educational accomplishments of most of the other members Keith Weldon Metley wrote in the book We as Freeman, Plessy versus Ferguson. His one attribute was being white enough to gain access to the train and black enough to be arrested for doing so, Metley wrote. More than six decades before Parks was arrested in Alabama, police forcibly removed Plessy from the car and he was imprisoned in the parish jail. The Supreme Court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that state racial segregation laws don't violate the Constitution as long as the facilities for the races were of equal quality. Plessy pleaded guilty to violating the Separate Car Act a year later and was fined $25. He died in 1925 with the conviction still on his record. Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson, the great-great-granddaughter of John Howard Ferguson, the judge who oversaw his case in Orleans Parish Criminal District Court, now lead a nonprofit that advocates for civil rights education. We cannot undo the wrongs of the past, but we can and should acknowledge them, Phoebe Ferguson told the pardon board. The New Orleans City Council honored Plessy's role in history in 2018 by giving his name to a section of the street where he tried to board the train. 
Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson both credited New Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams' civil rights office with seeking the pardon. Williams, who took office in January, ran for the open district attorney's post on a reform platform with a stress on reviewing and reversing wrongful past convictions. In an interview Friday, Williams noted that Plessy pleaded guilty to the separate car act violation on January 11, 1897, exactly 124 years before Williams took office. I think it just means that this was absolutely meant to be, Williams said. The move to pardon Plessy comes amid a wider discussion about whether convictions or arrest records of civil rights activists should be overturned or removed. Claudette Colvin, a black woman who was 15 when she refused to move to the back of a bus months before Parks did so, has sued to wipe out her conviction. Civil rights attorney Fred Gray, who represented Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., has said he might file a suit to do the same for them. But some civil rights advocates have said they don't want their arrest records expunged. King biographer Claiborne Carson called his own civil rights arrest record a badge of honor. Expunging the record doesn't change the historical reality that you were arrested, he told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, there are two photographs that go along with this article. One is Homer Plessy's tombstone, which is in a New Orleans cemetery. The caption to that photograph says, this June 3, 2018 photo shows a marker on the burial site for Homer Plessy at St. Louis No. 1 Cemetery in New Orleans. Homer Plessy, the namesake of the U.S. Supreme Court's 1896 separate but equal ruling, is being considered for a posthumous pardon. The Creole man of color died with a conviction still on his record for refusing to leave a whites-only train car in New Orleans in 1892. The second photo that goes along with this article shows two people, a descendant of Plessy and a descendant of Ferguson. The caption says, Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson, descendants of the principals in the Plessy versus Ferguson court case, posed for a photograph in front of a historical marker in New Orleans on Tuesday, June 7, 2011. Homer Plessy, the namesake of the U.S. Supreme Court's 1896 separate but equal ruling is being considered for a posthumous pardon. The Creole man of color died with a conviction still on his record for refusing to leave a whites-only train car in New Orleans in 1892. That was the article titled Homer Plessy, Key to Separate but Equal, On Road to Pardon from the Associated Press website written by Janet McConaughey. The next story in today's program is titled Fundamental Justice, Judge Clears Two in Malcolm X Slane. It was originally published on the Associated Press website on November 18th and was written by Michael R. Sisak, that's spelled capital S-I-S-A-K, and Jennifer Peltz. Her last name is spelled P-E-L-T-Z. More than half a century after the assassination of Malcolm X, two of his convicted killers were exonerated Thursday after decades of doubt about who was responsible for the civil rights icon's death. Manhattan Judge Ellen Bybin dismissed the convictions of Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam after prosecutors and the men's lawyers said a renewed investigation found new evidence that undermined the case against the men and determined that authorities withheld some of what they knew. 
The judge's last name is spelled B-I-B-E-N. Mr. Aziz's last name is spelled capital A-Z-I-Z. And Mr. Islam's first name is spelled capital K-H-A-L-I-L. The event that has brought us to court today should never have occurred, Aziz told the court. I am an 83-year-old man who was victimized by the criminal justice system. It pained Islam's sons, Amin Johnson and Shahid Johnson, that their parents died before seeing the conviction reversed. Still, Amin Johnson said his father would have been ecstatic to clear his name. His reputation meant a lot to him, the son said. And now we don't have to watch over our backs, worrying about any repercussions from anybody who thought that he might have been the one that killed Malcolm X. Aziz and Islam, who maintained their innocence from the start in the 1965 killing at Upper Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom, were paroled in the 1980s. Islam died in 2009. There can be no question that this is a case that cries out for fundamental justice, Biden said. Malcolm X gained national prominence as the voice of the Nation of Islam, exhorting black people to claim their civil rights by any means necessary. His autobiography, written with Alex Haley, remains a classic work of modern American literature. Near the end of Malcolm X's life, he split with the Black Muslim Organization and after a trip to Mecca, started speaking about the potential for racial unity. It earned him the ire of some in the Nation of Islam who saw him as a traitor. He was shot to death while beginning a speech February 21, 1965. He was 39. Aziz and Islam, then known as Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson, and a third man were convicted of the murder in March 1966. They were sentenced to life in prison. The third man, Mujahid Abdul Halim, also known as Talmadge Hare and Thomas Hagen, admitted to shooting Malcolm X, but said neither Aziz nor Islam was involved. The two offered alibis and no physical evidence linked them to the crime. The case hinged on eyewitnesses, although there were inconsistencies in their testimony. Halim was paroled in 2010. Through a relative, he declined to comment Thursday. He identified some other men as accomplices, but no one else has ever been accountable for the crime. The reinvestigation found that the FBI and police failed to turn over evidence that cast significant doubt on Islam and Aziz as suspects, according to a court filing. The evidence included witnesses who couldn't identify Islam, implicated other suspects in groups, and described a shotgun-wielding assassin who didn't match Islam, the man prosecutors said bore that weapon. Investigators also found an FBI file on a man Halim identified after the trial as one of his accomplices and who fit some other leads. And the records show that the late FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, ordered agents to tell witnesses not to reveal that they were informants when talking with police and prosecutors, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. said Thursday. New York Police Department records show there were undercover officers in the ballroom at the time of the killing, a fact prosecutors apparently knew before the trial but didn't appear to have told defense lawyers, the court filing said. One undercover officer later testified at an unrelated trial that he'd been acting as part of Malcolm X's security team and had walloped Halim with a chair, a blow that didn't jive with testimony from other witnesses at the alleged assassin's trial. 
Meanwhile, a witness who came forward in recent years told investigators that he has spoken with Aziz shortly after the killing on Aziz's home phone. Aziz has said from the start that he was home that day with a leg injury. There is one ultimate conclusion. Mr. Aziz and Mr. Islam were wrongfully convicted of this crime, and there is no prospect of retrying a 56-year-old case in which every witness who testified has died and the physical evidence is gone, Vance said. He apologized for law enforcement's serious, unacceptable violations of law and the public trust. The FBI and New York Police Department had evidence of Aziz's and Islam's innocence within hours, but ignored and suppressed it, said one of their attorneys, Deborah Francois, who worked on the case with civil rights lawyer Daniel Shanice and the Innocence Project. The bigger question of how or why this happened still remained unanswered, Innocence Project co-founder Barry Sheck said. The court filing recounts numerous tips and leads, but doesn't draw any conclusions about who might have been involved besides Helene. That was the article titled, Fundamental Justice, Judge Clears Two and Malcolm X Slain. It was originally published on the Associated Press website on November 18th and was written by Michael R. Sisek and Jennifer Peltz. There is one photograph that comes with the article. It shows Muhammad Aziz, dressed in black, hugging two women. The caption reads, Muhammad Aziz, center, stands outside the courthouse with members of his family after his conviction in the killing of Malcolm X was vacated. Thursday, November 18, 2021, in New York. A Manhattan judge dismissed the convictions of Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam after prosecutors and the men's lawyers said a renewed investigation found new evidence that the men were not involved with the killing and determined that authorities withheld some of what they knew. Coming up next in today's program is an op-ed piece from the Afro-American, which can be found at afro.com. The title is, The Montgomery Bus Boycott, 66 Years Ago This Week, Roused People Across the Nation to Demand Equal Rights. It was written by Mark H. Morial, President and CEO of the National Urban League. There comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being plunged across the abyss of humiliation, where they experience the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November. There comes a time. Martin Luther King Jr., December 5, 1955, addressed to the first Montgomery Improvement Association mass meeting. This week marks the anniversary of the first of the mass meetings that drove the strategy and spirit of the Montgomery bus boycott, a foundational event in the civil rights movement. My parents were active in the civil rights movement in Louisiana at the time, and their experience illustrate how the Montgomery protests reverberated throughout the South and also how New Orleans' distinctive history shaped racial issues there. Even during slavery, New Orleans was home to a large community of free people of color, the Jeans de Color Libre, many of whom had never been enslaved. Many were refugees from San Dominique, now Haiti, who fled the revolution. As Jim Crow took over the South, many formerly enslaved people also flocked to Louisiana. 
It was this class of free people of color who became the early civil rights activists, including Homer Plessy, whose parents were among those refugees from Haiti. To quote my mother, Sybil Hato Morial, in her memoir, Witness to Change, in many instances, including the landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case, Louisiana initiated important changes in civil rights thinking and activism. The significance of these events was often obscured because of the unusual, often subtle way in which they developed. Many Louisianans, both white and black, were accustomed to accommodation in a way that was not yet acceptable in other parts of the South. This is not to say Louisiana did not have its share of racial violence. In the 1960s, Bougalusa, Louisiana, was thought to have the highest per capita Ku Klux Klan membership in America. But in certain parts of the state, overt violence was tempered because of the tradition of compromise that had developed between the races over the centuries. Which may be why few people may be aware that two years before the Montgomery bus boycott, a Baptist minister by the name of T.J. Jemison led a bus boycott in Baton Rouge. In those days, the screens on buses proclaiming for colored patrons only were placed in holes on the backs of seats and could be moved forward and back. Black riders had to sit behind the screens. Sometimes, just for devilment, as my mother would say, a black student would sit in front of the screen, prompting the driver to stop the bus and demand that the student move behind the screen. Often, the offending student would fling the sign out the window and be put off the bus. Once, when he was a teenager, my father, Dutch, who was very light-skinned, boarded the bus and sat directly behind the screen. A white passenger who assumed my father also was white picked up the sign and moved it behind him so he was in the white section. Without saying a word, my father moved the screen back in front of him. Again, the white passenger moved the screen behind him saying, you belong in front of the screen. Again, my father placed the screen in front of him and said, I know where I belong. My father began his career as a civil rights attorney in 1954, the year of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, but it took a detour when he was drafted into the Army. My parents spent the first year of their marriage in Maryland and returned to Louisiana in September of 1956. The Montgomery bus boycott had been underway for nine months by then. Although Brown versus Board of Education had been decided two years earlier, the laws of separate but equal had to be individually challenged in each southern state. The layers of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, including future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, were traveling the country to assist local attorneys in arguing cases in each state. My father, who was just 26 years old, was privileged to be a part of this team as they worked together on a strategy to challenge Louisiana segregation laws. They often worked late, and because the team included both black and white attorneys, they were not legally permitted to eat in a restaurant together. That's why Dookie Chase Restaurant kept a separate upstairs room where the interracial group could meet over Leah Chase's hot gumbo and red beans and rice. The state law requiring segregation on public transportation, the one that had been challenged with that boycott in Baton Rouge in 1953, finally was overturned by a federal judge in 1958. A biracial group of leaders decided the sign saying for colored patrons only would be removed at midnight the day the decision went into effect and no media alerted. My parents laughed when my father told my mother that some of the white leaders had asked how, with no media attention, the Negroes would know they were free to sit anywhere on the buses and streetcars. My father and his colleagues assured them that the word would be quietly disseminated through our networks and people would begin to move freely on the buses. And of course, they did. Rosa Parks' arrest served as a clarion call for people all across the nation. 
I'm proud of how my parents answered that call. I strive every day to carry on their legacy. That was an op-ed piece from theafro.com titled, The Montgomery Bus Boycott 66 Years Ago This Week Roused People Across the Nation to Demand Equal Rights. It was written by Mark H. Morial, President and CEO of the National Urban League, and was originally published December 4, 2021, at afro.com. The following article is from the Guardian website, theguardian.com, and it's November 11, 2021 edition. The title of the article is Democrats Revive Bid to Tackle Historic Racial Inequities in GI Bill. There is no author to this article given. For Veterans Day, a group of Democratic lawmakers is reviving an effort to pay the families of black service members who fought on behalf of the nation during the Second World War for benefits they were denied or prevented from taking full advantage of when they returned home from war. The new legislative effort would benefit surviving spouses and all living descendants of black war veterans whose families were denied the opportunity to build wealth with housing and education benefits through the GI Bill. Since 1944, those benefits have been offered to millions of veterans transitioning to civilian life. But due to racism and discrimination in how they were granted through local Veterans Affairs offices, many black veterans received substantially less money toward buying a home or continuing their education. The Senate bill was to be introduced Thursday by Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia, the son of a wartime veteran. We've all seen how those inequities have trickled down over time, Warnock said, adding that the bill represents a major step toward righting this injustice. A House version was introduced last week by Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, the Democratic Majority Whip, and Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. The legislation would extend the VA Loan Guarantee Program and GI Bill Education Assistance to black veterans and their descendants who are alive at the time of the bill's enactment. It would also create a panel of independent experts to study inequities and in how benefits are administered to women and people of color. Lawrence Brooks, who at 112 years old is the oldest living U.S. veteran, was drafted to serve during the war and assigned to the mostly black 91st Engineer General Service Regiment. The Louisiana native, who has 12 grandchildren and 23 great-grandchildren, always believed that serving his country was the only way he could leave behind his life as the son of sharecroppers, said his daughter Vanessa Brooks. But after he was discharged in August 1945 as a private first class, he did not realize his dream of going to college, working instead as a forklift driver before retiring in his 60s. He always wanted to go to school, his daughter said. And when he bought his home, he used his retirement fund, not GI Bill benefits, she said. President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act into law in 1944, making generous financial subsidies available to 16 million Second World War veterans pursuing higher education and buying their first homes. Irrespective of race, veterans who served more than 90 days during the war and have been honorably discharged are entitled to the benefits. But after returning from the war, black and white veterans face two very different realities. Because the GI Bill benefits had to be approved by local VA offices, 
few of whom were black, the process created problems for veterans. This was particularly acute in the Deep South, where Jim Crow segregation imposed racist barriers to home ownership and education. Local VA officers there either made it difficult for black veterans to access their benefits or lessened their value by steering them away from predominantly white four-year colleges and toward vocational and other non-degree programs. In contrast to the treatment of black veterans, the GI Bill helped home ownership rates soar among white veterans in a post-war housing boom that created a ripple effect their children and grandchildren continue to benefit from today. Of the more than 3,000 VA home loans that have been issued to veterans in Mississippi in the summer of 1947, only two went to black veterans, according to an Ebony Magazine survey at the time. The Federal Housing Administration's racist housing policies also affected black veterans, undoubtedly contributing to today's racial wealth gap. Realtors and banks would refuse to show houses or offer mortgages to qualified home buyers in certain neighborhoods because of their race or ethnicity, a tactic referred to as redlining. There is a photo that comes with the story. The black and white World War II era photo shows a line of airmen wearing bomber jackets standing at attention while an officer in a trench coat inspects them. In the background to the left is a propeller-driven military plane. The caption says, Major James Ellison returns the salute of Mac Ross of Dayton, Ohio, with cadets at the Tuskegee Institute in January 1942. That was the article titled, Democrats Revive Bid to Tackle Historic Racial Inequities in GI Bill, from the Guardian newspaper's website, theguardian.com. The name of the author of this article was not given. Next in today's program is an obituary from the New York Times. It's titled, Reverend W. Sterling Carey, Pioneering Black Churchman, Dies at 94. The subtitle to the obituary reads, He embraced what became known as Black Liberation Theology and in 1972 became the first black leader of the National Council of Churches. It was written by Sam Roberts and was published November 19th 2021. Carey is spelled C-A-R-Y. The Reverend Dr. W. Sterling Carey, who boldly joined other black religious leaders in 1966 in seeking to reconcile nonviolence and demands for black power, and who was later elected the first black president of the National Council of Churches, died on Sunday at his home in Flossmore, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. He was 94. The cause was heart failure, his daughter Yvonne Carey Carter said. Mr. Carey was elected unanimously by the largely liberal National Council of Churches, the biggest ecumenical body in the United States, in December 1972. He served until 1975. His election set a precedent that he expressed hope would go beyond the symbolism of the 1960s. For me, the symbolic victories don't mean very much, he told the New York Times in 1972. A black is elected to Congress or mayor of a city that's almost dead. That's empowering an individual, not a people. Mr. Carey was the pastor of Grace Congregational Church in Harlem in 1966 when he helped organize the Ad Hoc National Committee of Negro Churchmen. In the July 31st edition of the New York Times, the committee took out an advertisement that embraced the demands for black power being proclaimed by Stokely Carmichael the newly minted national chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and his disciples 
which many white clerics and mainstream civil rights leaders were condemning as anti-American and anti-Christian. What we see shining through the variety of rhetoric is not anything new, but the same old problem of power and race which has faced our beloved country since 1619, the clergyman wrote, referring to the year black slaves were first imported to what became the United States. While they emphasized that they did not see power as a quest for either isolation or domination, their statement condemned American officials who tie a white noose of suburbia around the necks of black people, relegating them to joblessness in dilapidated and still segregated schools and leaving them unprotected by laws against discrimination that went unenforced. Mr. Carey would reflect later that the interracial coalition that advanced civil rights in the 1960s imploded when the movement began to challenge racial inequality in the North. What became known as black liberation theology echoed decades later when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008 and was asked whether he shared the views of his own minister, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, an apostle of that theology. In an interview with NPR that year, Mr. Carey described Mr. Wright as a prophetic voice still urging the nation to take a step toward full justice for all their people. William Sterling Carey was born on August 10, 1927, in Plainfield, New Jersey, one of eight children of Andrew Jackson Carey, a real estate broker and YMCA administrator, and Sadie Walker Carey, a homemaker. He ran for student body president of his predominantly white high school and believed he had won by a commanding majority. But the dean informed him that, according to official results, he had been defeated. Concluding that he would be more comfortable in an all-black school, he decided to enroll at Morehouse College in Atlanta. Ordained in the Baptist Church in 1948, he was elected student body president of Morehouse that same year and graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1949. He enrolled in Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, where his fellow students elected him the first black class president. He graduated with a master's degree in divinity in 1952. He later served in Presbyterian and United Church of Christ congregations, including as the pastor of Butler Memorial Presbyterian Church in Youngstown, Ohio. For three years, he ministered to the interracial, interdenominational church of the Open Door in Brooklyn. Mr. Carey was the pastor of Grace Congregational Church from 1958 until 1968, when he was named administrator of the Metropolitan New York District of the United Church of Christ. In that position, he oversaw some 100 congregations with more than 50,000 parishioners. He was 45 and living in Hollis, Queens, when he was elected president of the National Council of Churches. At the time, Ebony Magazine named him one of the most influential African-Americans in the United States. In 1974, he was elected conference minister of the Illinois Conference of the United Church of Christ, the first black person to serve in that role. He oversaw some 250 churches until he retired in 1994. In addition to his daughter Yvonne, he is survived by his wife, Marie Bell Phillips Carey, two other daughters, Denise and Patricia Carey, a son, W. Sterling Jr., two grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. In his 2008 National Public Radio interview, Mr. Carey said the United States had made tremendous strides toward racial justice but he added a caveat. This is a different world than the world into which I was born and the world I grew up in, but it is still a world in need of perfection, he said. There are all kinds of conditions that cry out for addressing by the nation. 
He said he was struck by how Americans celebrate the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It's significant that he was talking about having a dream, Mr. Kerry said. The country has no problem with your dreaming. But when Stokely Carmichael spoke the language of demand, or when Malcolm X spoke the language of demand, they were looked upon as militants, as threats to the stability of society. Now, why that is so, I guess it would take a psychiatrist to analyze. There are three images that come with this obituary of W. Sterling Carey. The first is a color picture of Reverend Carey. He is outside, talking into four microphones that are attached to a single microphone stand. He is wearing a winter coat that has a fur collar and lapels. The caption reads, The Reverend W. Sterling Carey addressing a rally in Washington to protest United States intervention in Angola in 1976, four years after he was elected the first black president of the National Council of Churches. The next image is a reproduction of a page from the July 31, 1966 edition of the New York Times newspaper. The headline on the page says, Black Power. The advertisement is divided into four sections. The first section reads, To the leaders of America, power and freedom. The second section is titled, To white churchmen, power and love. The third section is titled, To Negro citizens, power and justice. The fourth section is titled, To the Mass Media, Power and Truth. The caption says, In 1966, Mr. Carey helped organize the Ad Hoc National Committee of Negro Churchmen, which took out an advertisement in the New York Times that embraced demands for black power. The final image is a photograph of W. Sterling Carey. He has a mustache. He is wearing a dark suit, striped tie, and a white shirt. The caption reads, Mr. Carey in an undated portrait. This is a different world than the world into which I was born and the world I grew up in, but it is still a world in need of perfection, he said. That's an obituary from the New York Times titled, Reverend W. Sterling Carey, Pioneering Black Churchman Dies at 94. It was written by Sam Roberts and published November 19th, 2021. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thank you for joining me.